This is the Green Steel Challenge. Hi, I'm Astrid Korf, and this is the Green Steel Challenge. My father, Willy Korf, revolutionized the steel industry in the late 60s with his mini mills and his new energy saving technologies. My mission today is to help make steel production greener. But what is green steel? How can we make it? And how can we speed up the progress? In this podcast, we will challenge the steel industry to get specific about how to get to zero carbon steel. We will meet global industry leaders to push the conversation and the innovation forward. Joining me on this journey are two of the keenest observers in the space, Dr. Mike Walt Hello. and James Moss. Hello. Let's welcome today's special guest from the World Steel Association in Brussels, Edwin Basson, Director General, and Osa Ekdal, Head of Environment and Climate Change. Thanks very much for that, Astrid. We thought we'd kick off the podcast with a very general opening question to Edwin and Orsa, and that is, what does green steel and decarbonisation mean to them personally and what it means for world steel? Orsa. Through this whole discussion, I mean, climate and, and about definitions and so on, we, and I, I must agree, that's also my own view, that green steel is not really a, um, a very good term or... Ideally, all, all steel should be green, but it shouldn't only relate to climate. We know that we are impacting on, on the whole environment. Climate is, is, of course, in focus right now, but emissions to, to air and water are important too. Um, the, the industry has done tremendous progress in, this, in these areas over the you know, many decades uh, before. Uh, but I think that the term green steel is a bit sort of misleading in that. I think as well steel, we prefer the terms low carbon steel. Um, the term decarbonization is also a little bit difficult for us because as you know, we need uh, carbon in steel, otherwise it's it's not steel in fact. Um, and we're not necessarily arguing that we shouldn't use carbon. Uh, of course, we need to limit or, or even cease to emit carbon dioxide to the environment but the term maybe is not uh, not the right one. However, I, I feel that we probably lost the battle on that one. So I, I guess we can talk about decarbonization now. What does that mean to me? Um, well, it means uh, we all know that uh, the Paris Agreement, of course, is is the let's say framework we all uh, have to uh, to relate to, um, and. Um, we need to do our part. The, in, the steel industry needs to do its part for the world to stay well, well below uh, two degrees, of course, ideally at 1.5. And, and to that, we need to reduce our emissions radically. So don't want to say any specific numbers. This is, this is, of course, still sort of being debated and it might look different in different countries, but, but significantly reduced emissions, that's, that's for sure. Edwin. The reason why I don't like green is, is as also said, it's 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 a bit undefined. It's a very wide term, and and actually nowadays green is used by so many different parts of our society with so many different connotations that it actually, to some degree, uh, leads to more questions than answers. And in our industry specifically, to find a common, equally definable definition between the different industry routes that applies equally to all routes is at this stage almost impossible. And I personally think we 
waste more energy trying to define when when is something green or not, if I can use that term, we should rather use the energy in making progress towards the goal of decarbonization. And decarbonization for me personally is, is something that is uh, a very realizable target for our industry. We have the benefit that uh, we know where we come from, we know where the CO2 emissions are, are being generated in our industry, and we do have um, more than just an idea of which technologies to use going forward uh, in the process of decarbonizing our industry. It is true that uh, it will not be necessarily an easy process. It is true also that we don't have all the answers at the moment, but it is true that we do know there's a lot that we can do uh, and we do not need to wait. We can start the process uh, as soon as we are ready to start it. Okay. That's very interesting. I think we like your candle uh, in terms of what you mean by the definition of green steel. Uh, way too much uh, energy is taken up by uh, definitions nowadays and uh, extremely formulaic uh, prescriptions. Edwin, you've been in place uh, long enough to uh, see uh, the vast journey of uh, decarbonisation uh, as we know it. I'd just be interested to hear your personal view of how you've seen this develop from, say, 2010, which until 2017 was a fairly benign concept in the background, but has just suddenly exploded into life uh, that has made steel industry literally one of the most exciting uh, industries in the world, which is something I haven't seen in 30 years in the industry. Yes, you're absolutely true. It is. It has been fascinating, and it still is very fascinating. I think your dates are also very similar to my dates, 2010 to about 2017, although this was on the agenda. It was not necessarily viewed as an urgent item or even an item that we should uh, uh, discuss too intensively. We started in World Steel uh, in 2000, late 2016. We finally got agreement that we should get an external body to do an evaluation of so-called what we would call pathways or roadways towards a decarbonized state. And we requested in those days the International Energy Agency to do an evaluation for us, partly because uh, they also have governments as an organization. The IEA has governments as members, and, and we wanted to have a common view between governments and the industry of what is possible and, and realizable. The IA came out with their study eventually in 2020, and something happened. I don't know whether it was COVID, I don't know whether it was political change around the world, whether it was the impact of Paris uh, 2015, or whether it was just the fact that we've seen quite a number of newer, younger CEOs coming to the uh, into the steel industry over that same period. But something happened, and by 2020, this topic was quite an interesting topic for everybody. There was a willingness to discuss this. And the fact that the International Energy Agency Roadways Project indicated that there is quite a lot that we as an industry can do, uh, in, and it will not necessarily be the same approach in every region. There will be very strong differences uh, between the various regions, depending on where you start, depending on what your raw material position looks like and so forth somehow just gave everybody comfort that this is something that not only has to be done, but also can be done. And uh, companies started taking this into their own longer term strategic plans. So to me personally, I I'm always astounded at how quickly the readiness 
to become involved has changed in our industry. And I think it is a, it is a, a momentum that we have now that we should continue with. And, and in, a, in a way, the steel industry is quite fortunate, uh, firstly, because as a product, in terms of if we just talk CO2 emissions crudely, steel is already quite competitive amongst its peers in terms of the amount of CO2 that it releases. It still is a lot as an industry that we release, but on a per ton basis or a per unit basis, we are not the worst uh, in the materials world. But secondly, we have different technology routes that are available. We have alternatives in the raw material space that are available, and that allows us uh, with a certain richness as an industry to explore different avenues in different parts of the world, all of them focusing towards getting to a, a decarbonized future state. And I think it is possible to do. The IAEA report was commissioned by World Steel. Is that right? Is that what I understood you to say? We did not commission it in the sense that we've asked them to do some work and we paid them an amount of money. We discussed the idea with them. They were looking at anyway doing these roadways projects. And we agreed with them that we will get the industry involved and we'll do a joint evaluation of what is possible. So we involved our industry members, uh, other associations around the world. They threw their resources into the pot. And eventually in 2020, we had a combined outcome uh, of the study. Because that study has a lot of traction, I mean, or it got a lot of traction, and it's constantly referred to as being, you know, offering a slope in terms of how we achieve certain goals or how we achieve the Paris Agreement goals. That was great foresight in terms of collaborating at that level. Awesome. Edwin was talking a lot about what happened within the industry, but there was also, of course, the momentum from the outside. Yeah. And having followed the the UN climate conferences now for for a long time, I would say if until actually it was in 2017 as well that it changed. And until then, um, let's say in the side event space, so outside of the the formal negotiations, there are all these discussions going on, going on about what's happening in the world and where the focus should be and what can be done. And until then. The focus of those discussions had very much been on the energy system and on transport, I would say. But in 2017, it was the first time that I actually saw, you know, industry being put uh, in the spotlight. And of course, that's where the term the hard to abate sectors was kind of, you know, established. Yeah. Um, and since then, of course, that interest has just grown. But I think it's it came it came to a point where it was relatively clear what needed to be done with the energy system and the transport as well. And then the focus shifted to industry that hadn't been in focus, probably because it's not so straightforward how we are going to achieve decarbonization. One is that the sectors are different, but also uh, it's not a matter of just changing, let's say from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and then it's all it's all done. So since then the interest has grown, but I would say the whole time it's been in a sort of in a constructive way with the recognition that we need industry we need the products that are being produced from the steel industry from the cement from the chemical sectors Um, but that it's not so straightforward how the transition is going to to be so the discussions have been around how can we help the industry what needs to be in place for the industry to make this transition uh, related to for example uh, of course raw material and energy energy requirements uh, breakthrough technologies, uh, a demand for these low low carbon products, 
And so it's been a, a yeah, and it's a it's a dis- constructive discussion. It's very difficult, different from the um, the fossil fuel industry, where of course it's all about using less or none or divesting and so on. Here, it's been been a, in a positive way. On reflection, that. EIA report in 2020, I think it was. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying it's directly due to that report, although it's good, but just as importantly, it was marketed extremely well and that everybody and his brother and sister uh, read that report. And I think what has happened, tied in with what uh, Edwin has said, is that we're seeing new, fresh, young CEOs uh, come through in the steel industry, which is somewhat unusual uh, for the steel industry. Uh, And then now that people understand what the steel industry has been in the past in terms of emissions, but as now in 2023 understands that, A, it is generally doing something and it is a very exciting journey. And for once in a very long time, uh, people are looking at steel much more favourably and in a different light because they understand what's going on. And all of a sudden, you're seeing lots of reports in all kinds of newspapers and the press about steel companies and what they're doing. So I think, to a degree, uh, a lot of work has already been done. And the whole steel industry, especially uh, in Europe, which is at the sharp end of this at the moment, and to a degree the US which has already been there, uh, the whole industry has been seen in, in a different light. Uh, do, do you agree with that? Do you see that as a more positive thing right now? Yes and no. We do see certainly the, the positive attitude that you are referring to within the industry and also to a very large degree from many of these um, NGOs and other commentating bodies around the industry. The one area that is, uh, according to our information, uh, and we track this every two or three years to see what the trends are, but the one the one sector of society which is not yet as positive as the rest is what we broadly call the ESG community, mainly from the investment side. And I think for them it is just uh, they compare the industry with all the others. They look at it on a more of a of a macro basis, uh, and and. In their defense, uh, although there is a lot of talk, we do not yet at a macro level begin to see uh, significant adjustments in our industry. We begin to see it if you go to individual participants in the industry. But as an industry itself, our overall CO2 emissions have not yet come down dramatically. Uh, There's a hint that they are stabilizing and there's a hint that some some participants in the industry is beginning to see the benefit. So I cannot blame the ESG community for still being doubtful. And uh, really, the, the the job is on our side now to show them over the next number of years that they should actually not take this industry and the promises this industry make lightly. There is, I mean, if you take a, a wider view of the investment community, including the ESG segment, some of the numbers that are quoted in terms of the capital investment required are so eye-watering that uh, to some extent, There's an argument to say we should start from scratch rather than try and reinvest in some of the legacy assets. Is that any part of it? Is it the capital investment magnitude so scary? No, I think that's part of the misunderstanding. you know, there are a large number of very helpful organizations that all, all of them provide views on how this industry should adjust. Also, and their colleagues try and, 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 and align with all of them and get, uh, you know, be in touch with all of them. And uh, latest figures, they've been in touch with almost 100 different 
organizations uh, around the world, many of them in Europe and the USA, and they're only coming to light now in the Asian part of the world. But a key part of, of, of that uh, process uh, is that some of them have made uh, future investment requirements available. Now, it's not always very clear what their boundary conditions are for the investment uh, figures that they quote. We recently did a, a, just an evaluation to say, what has been said by everybody and how do you disentangle the storyline a little bit? And essentially, the, the headline storyline says, between now and 2050, uh, figures are quoted of between five and a half to six trillion US dollars of investment requirement in the industry. But if you begin to drill into it, about half of that sits in supply industry to the steel industry. In other words, about three trillion is the need jointly of the energy industry and the uh, raw material industry to do the sort of decarbonization efforts that would be required on their side which the steel industry can benefit from. And then there is, uh, in the steel industry itself, depending on how far upstream and downstream you go, we estimate somewhere between 800 to a trillion, uh, 800 uh, billion to a trillion US dollars investment required between now and 2050. The steel industry turnover at the moment is in the order of two and a half to three trillion a year, we estimate. So uh, on the face of it, for the steel industry alone, the investment requirement is large, but it is not unmanageably large over a, over a 50 year period. Uh, and so therefore we have to be very careful what you include and what you exclude in some of these investment uh, decisions. Uh, and, and this is a piece of work that we are trying to drill into in more detail so that we can be begin to bring some 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 more light to to these very very broad and large figures that are being thrown around. Yeah, but it is also true that for the decarbonized decarbonization future of the steel industry, we do require uh, quite a significant adjustment in our energy suppliers, uh, and and uh, therefore to that degree, uh, that investment is required. But it is not does not necessarily say that all has to come out of the steel industry. Mm. It is it is actually looking at the value chain. And then you start talking about a six trillion US dollar investment figure. Yeah. But in the steel part, we estimate about a, about a one trillion overall that we need that we would need in years to come. Looking at Europe, uh, which you could almost consider as the world's most expensive uh, petri dish experiment, uh, where this is all going on as we speak. Um, so my understanding is is that the EU or Commission or whatever you want to call it is coming up with about fifty percent of that funding for the steel industry uh, aspect of it. Uh, is that a, a number that you're pleasantly surprised at? Uh, is it considered essential or 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 not enough? Because forgetting whether that's right or wrong in terms of public money, that is obviously absolutely critical in getting Europe to do this. And if it doesn't work in Europe, you're not going to see it happen in Asia or anywhere else for a long time. Uh, so how do you think as part of that funding, the public angle of it is stacking up so far in Europe? I cannot at the moment swear to the 50% uh, uh, support ratio, but what we do see certainly not only in Europe, but uh, throughout the world that there is uh, quite a lot of uh, willingness from our governments around the world to be part of this decarbonization process. 
uh, partly because some of the decarbonization process is really going to require significant amounts of investment in infrastructure new pipelines to transport new gases, uh, new renewable energy uh, infrastructures and so forth. And in that sense, uh, governments are becoming very, very involved. And in Europe in particular, we have seen governments also becoming involved in investments with a specific objective to prove decarbonization initiatives. So overall, I think uh, the collaboration or call it collaboration between the governments and industry so far in Europe is, is good, and I hope it will continue in this way. It is also uh, in most other countries uh, around the world that we are seeing strong willingness by governments to be part of the storyline, not so much only uh, as part of the decarbonization initiative, but in the realization that our economic systems has to be overhauled to some degree uh, in order to support decarbonization, and that benefits not only the steel industry, it also benefits other industries. So we have initiatives, as you've seen in the United States, the IRA. It's quite a lot, uh, quite quite uh, often spoken about. Um, I'm here in, in in Asia at the moment. Uh, even in Asia, we do see a willingness and a support from governments. And we're also seeing more and more uh, initiatives that is also looking towards research and development support. Uh, in Europe recently. Uh, legislation has been adjusted to allow joint research and development programs to be carved out under certain conditions from uh, competitions law, which is quite useful. Previously, we wanted to do something as an industry jointly, and we decided it's not possible to do so uh, and escape competitions law. Now there's a new avenue open to explore, and we are exploring it at the moment to see whether that makes sense. So, so there is at various layers openness from government to help this decarbonization initiatives and the steel industry will benefit from from those but so will other industries as well and you also talked about uh, raw materials and energy and its relationship to um the steel industry that part of the supply chain has has always been a bit uneasy uh, uh, in the past i can only imagine that this is creating a uh, a whole new paradigm in terms of the supply to uh, the steel industry. Yes, uh, and uh, different stories again in different regions. You know, if we look at the industry today, uh, as you will know, the one route is the electric arc furnace route, making use of mainly scrap as 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 an input. Uh, that route is well defined. It it has a low CO2 emission at the moment relatively to the integrated route, which is the second route. Uh, where you make use of raw materials into a blast furnace and then you make your steel. Uh, And that second route, the integrated route, is uh, significantly more carbon intensive at the moment. And it is 70% of all the steel that is made around the world. So there is a strong uh, faction of advisors in the world that says, well, what's the problem? Just go to electric arc furnace. Uh, That is partly true, but the reality is Today, there is not enough scrap in the world to uh, satisfy all of the global steel demand by making use of this route. So that means we have to to make choices of where in the world are we going to allow which road or not allow, where, where in the world will which route be utilized. North America is very fortunate in the sense that traditionally they have been very strongly down the electric arc furnace and scrap-based route, and that will continue. 
Europe is trying to shift a little bit into this sort of middle ground between the two routes where uh, it is it is trying to make use of uh, uh, hydrogen through a direct reduced uh, process to generate hot metal, which could then go into an electric arc furnace route and the combined CO2 effect of these of this route, which is kind of a middle route between the integrated route and the scrap route, is lower than the integrated route, but higher than in the scrap route. Uh, and this is what Europe is exploring with. Uh, this is uh, what is requiring a huge number, a huge amount of future requirement for hydrogen if we want to do the, the reduction of the iron ore with hydrogen. But overall, all three routes we think has opportunity to improve. Uh, and, and this brings us to this raw material question. If we find too many people going down the scrap route, uh, then you start seeing all sorts of uncomfortable behaviors, which are beginning to surface in some parts of the world. Things that uh, scrap exports are being limited in some countries, uh, which is not necessarily good for the industry. Going towards the middle route, the DRI route, one of the key questions there is the long-term availability of high-quality iron ore, which can be reduced with hydrogen as, as, as a material. And this is a question mark in terms of how much is really possible globally. Going to the integrated route, the question is more a different question, and that is assuming that a big part of the world, mainly in Asia, will for the foreseeable future need to continue to make steel through this integrated route. What is possible to be done in the blast furnace to reduce CO2 emissions in the blast furnace. And there is very interesting and encouraging research and development being done now in many Asian countries, which indicates that somewhere in the next uh, seven to 10 years, we may very well see blast furnaces operating at significantly lower CO2 emissions than we are seeing them operate today. And then behind that research is a, is a second round of, of laboratory research, which seems to indicate at very early stages yet that even more could be done and that we could have blast furnaces in the future running at vastly lower CO2 emission rates than they are running today. So in all three routes, there are question marks around raw material availability, question marks about technological availability or technological improvements. But in all three routes also, the figures are fairly clear that in the short term, there is much that we can do as an industry by by maximizing uh, the the beneficial routes at the moment where it is possible to have these routes in Europe and the USA. That also will require certain behavioral changes. For instance, in scrap, with more and more steel being used in applications that are electrically driven, whether it's vehicles, whether it's appliances and so forth, the question of copper contamination in scrap becomes a question that is now even more urgent than it was in the past. And we need to start thinking now about doing joint initiatives with uh, producers of vehicles, producers of, uh, of uh, um, uh, household equipment and so forth, whether we can find new designs that would, would allow us to get the copper out of the steel parts much more easily, much more visibly, so that we have a clean recycling route for steel. Now, these are questions that are not really to do with decarbonization, but they are important for the future 
maintenance of a decarbonized steelmaking route. And all of these are initiatives that we should be working on uh, in the short and medium term. Mm. If I can ask also who's working at the front end of this, there's two sort of major divisions, I suppose. One is the difference between process routes and where people are starting in terms of their overall emissions. And the second one, which might be even bigger, but sort of overlays it, which is the the, the division between developing and developed economies where um, obviously there's a good portion of the world that still needs to grow its steel output. It's certainly its steel consumption. And the expectations are that we may be, what, 800 million to a billion tons short of where peak steel might be. How do you broker that, either technically or uh, as an association? We we always, of course, say that. I mean, it's it's great with these front running, you know, front runners that we have now developing the breakthrough technologies. But if we want to achieve a true decarbonization of the steel industry, we need to get everyone on board. This is a global challenge. It's a global industry, and exactly like you said, I mean, the growth that we have in steel production is not in Europe, for example. So we we absolutely need to have China and India involved in all of these discussions. And I, I'm very happy to say that they are very much involved in, in the discussions as well. The other thing is that all these countries have different circumstances um, in many different ways. One, the way that the industry is set up uh, right now, the, the technologies they use, the energy systems, the raw materials that are available, the support that they have from from governments and so on. And it's clear that the transition will happen at different speeds um, in in the world, but also with with different solutions. And sometimes we we talk about these technologies as as being very separate. We tend to talk about the integrated route or the hydrogen DRI or electrolysis or biomass, but in fact, that many of these things can be combined. There's also the, the carbon capture and use, for example, or, or CCS and storage and so on. As, as well as steel, we always uh, make an, um, a, few, a few of the points and see if I can remember. One, we, this is a global challenge and we need to get everyone on board. Uh, two, it needs to be up to the, to the companies to choose the technologies that are suit, best suitable for their circumstances and and sort of where they are and then we need to something we didn't touch upon yet the fundamental of knowing what our emissions are as in having a common way of measuring and understanding what the what the situation looks like so we touched upon upon a definition before and and we believe that there's well first of all that that's not the key thing right we need to to move ahead but even if we talk about definitions, most likely we need a set of definitions that will be different for different purposes in different places, but that we need to measure and have the common basis needs to be the same. So that's one of our, our priorities as well. And that I must say, even though we don't agree or the members don't agree related to definitions, related to um, measurement methodologies and standards, they are very much uh, in agreement. So. So our role is in all of these discussions that we mentioned, there are all these international initiatives talking about all of these, these different aspects is to, to bring these points in. You know, it needs to be global. We need to, to be technology neutral. We need to know what we're talking about, have a, having a common base. And then to ask kind of the difficult questions and, and challenge the assumptions that are, are being made about the industry. 
Edwin? Uh, you mentioned the figure that we need about 800 to a, to a billion tons additional for the developing economies. Uh, the future is actually not as bleak as that. Uh, we estimate around the world today, the steel use is around 2 billion tons mm -hmm. on an annual basis in crude steel terms. If we take again all the estimates made by very many people, it seems to us as if stabilization somewhere in the future sits at between 2.4 and 2.6 billion uh, US, uh, 2.4 and 2.6 billion tons in a crude steel format. That assumes, amongst others, that China is, as it is very likely right. from all their figures, beginning to be at the peak of their use curve at the moment. And we may, might see a reduction taking place. We see similar signals that South Korea is at that point. Japan has already been there and most of US and most of uh, Europe has been there. India is, is growing yep. uh, at the moment and has a long way to go still. So that's the one assumption that we'll have these regional adjustments. The second assumption is that we will become better as a global society at reusing steel and uh, before we recycle it. In other words, currently today, steel is, remains on a weighted average in use for about 40 years before it enters the scrap stream. Some faster, a beverage can has a lifetime of, of uh, three months. But a bridge, a uh, railway bridge, has a life, life cycle of 70 years. But the weighted average of all of this is about 40 years. If we can, through better reuse practices, uh, can extend that, say, from 40 years to 45 years, what we delay is, 10 year, is, is five years' worth of CO2 emissions. Uh, and, and if you smooth that over a 10 or 20-year period, that's also a significant part of decarbonization of our industry as a whole. And therefore, we need to work with developing economies that as they now begin to uh, install their own steel-making capacities, that they do so in a way that they focus on capacities that can play a role in this decarbonization story, but also that we look at the use practices uh, and, and reuse practices of steel in those economies as well as in developed economies. So it's, a, it's an interesting wide spectrum of challenges that need to be addressed as part of this decarbonisation story. Yeah, I mean, the reuse is something that uh, doesn't get much coverage. It's all about recycling. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, uh, in Europe, sort of reuse of steel is, is is developing. Do you think there's orders of magnitude of for room improvement in reusing steel, or is it a 1%, 2% kind of thing globally per year? It's really two stories. There's a reuse story and there's a remanufacturing story. So if you if you talk about this uh, recirculation story, its first step is producing the material as efficiently as you can. And this, the industry is broadly there. You know, 97% of what goes into the front end of a steel factory comes out at the back end as a usable product. So it's already a fairly efficient process. And that needs to be maintained and continued uh, uh, into the future. The second part is the reuse of steel. This is where you take it out of a building, you possibly repaint it, and then reuse it in a different application. And reuse as an application seems to be more focused around construction mm -hmm. activity. A little bit elsewhere as well, but mainly in the construction environment. And then the remanufacturing activity is where you take components of what was previously manufactured, you recondition those and you reuse them as a reconditioned product into a new product where your uh, licensing and guarantee conditions are almost as new. 
At the moment, the reuse story seems to be about five times larger than the remanufacturing story mm -hmm. on a global basis. And it's mainly in Europe and North America that we've been able to test these figures. Your figure of 2% is about right. We think about 2% of, of steel gets remanufactured at the end of, of life cycle and then going back into, into uh, the reuse or into the remanufacture stream. Uh, and this has to increase, but it will take time. And we don't think it is going to be a spectacular boom yeah. in this kind of activity that we will see. But it, it, it will play a role in, in the long term. And at least if it just buys us three, four, five years worth of CO2 savings, as it were, it is already worth the effort from a global society point of view. So we've got momentum, we've got attention, we've got participation, pretty broad participation across the piece. What are the major impediments to actually achieving the goals that we've set out for ourselves? I mean, other than the technical, chemical and physical issues of, uh, of, of getting the technologies right, um, uh, what are the main things in the way? Edwin? To be very brutal, uh, the contribution that we may need from sectors outside the steel industry. Uh, to use Europe again as an example, uh, this unfortunate war between Russia and Ukraine seems to have delayed the transition process to a large degree in the energy sector in Europe by quite a number of months, possibly even years. That delay means that there seems to be a delay also in uh, our ability to manufacture hydrogen at speed or to scale up that process of manufacturing hydrogen at speed. And this could potentially lead to a delay in the decarbonization effort of steel in, 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 in Europe in particular. So this is just one example where the interplay between different uh, sectors and the requirement that each needs from the other in, in the process of, of decarbonizing is not as smooth as it can be. So that's an area of possible constraint that I think we need to look at. The other area of possible constraint, I, I would say, are very practical things. Again, if I go to the area of, of hydrogen, the question of safety in transporting hydrogen, in storing it, in using it under heated conditions uh, are all questions where there are no real uh, standardized practices available and where we would need to uh, uh, do some work to develop safety practices, uh, safety in use procedures. Uh, this will take a little bit of time because it's a new area for all of us. But these are really, I think, the, the impediments to moving forward quickly are small items which are not necessarily in the mainstream of thinking when we talk about decarbonization, but it becomes practical issues to think about in the, in the, in the medium term. Orsa? Yeah, I just wanted to add an, another um, aspect that we are increasingly talking about is uh, skills. For example, the, the, the equipment manufacturers over the, the, the last few decades have been, for example, building DRI facilities, you know, a few a year. But now with the, with the scale up um, of, of building a hydrogen based DRI facilities, they are going to uh, have to build, let's say, to keep up uh, many, many, you know, many, many more than that, which which means that we require skilled um, plant builders, for example, that, that we haven't really needed that much uh, in the last few decades. 
And it all, it's also about running them in these kind of quite basic industrial skills uh, that would be needed to, to change. So that's something that is uh, increasingly in focus. And then I would say, I think there is still a lack of understanding of the real scale of the challenge. As in, we talk about the the, the changes we would need in, in energy requirements, in, in raw materials and so on. But I'm not convinced that there is a real understanding among both policymakers, but also actually uh, these, let's call them supporting industries, of what, how much will actually be needed. Mm -hmm. So I think that we, we need to be better in, in communicating uh, across the whole sort of supply chain, or as we like to talk talk about it, the ecosystem, sort of including financial institutions and academics and, and so on in the discussions as well about really, really the scale of the challenge. Yeah. I mean, I work in, live in the US and, uh, you know, one of the things that is puzzling to an, an the North American industry is why there was not the same transition to electric arc furnaces in Europe as there was there. There are all kinds of uh, uh, structural and uh, factor cost issues involved. But one of the main issues, I think, is labor displacement. And we have a situation here in the UK now where Tata Steel is is going to get help to convert to electric arc furnace in Port Talbot. And the union is confronted by enormous job losses. And those are pitched against what they might describe as short-term environmental gain. And so you end up with this sort of blue-green conflict how do you see that playing out in various different parts of the world i suppose this point is quite important because it's just a, as you say a very relevant example on what could delay this transition process in the overall scheme of things we're talking here of a transition that uh, at best would take us two decades so is a few months or a year this way or that way really that detrimental yes it is detrimental in the short term because it may prevent us as a global society to hit the 2030 targets, and then we may not hit the 2050 targets. From that perspective, it's important to find resolutions, but uh, over a 20-year period, maybe there are other things that we should uh, uh, keep in mind and not, not be too, too pedantic about finding uh, maybe not optimal solutions in the short term. And I think that allows that, hopefully, this kind of thinking takes a little bit the heat out of this this discussion around uh, labor versus short-term uh, environmental gains. It allows us to think a little bit differently, reshape the, the debate, and then hopefully move forward. But it is going to, this sort of thing is is going to happen, I think, and become visible uh, over the next number of months and years, and we need to find short-term solutions to bypass them. Mm. The opposite of that is that uh, an anecdote I've heard from a large German steel company that will remain nameless, is that one of their major issues that they had highlighted in part of their decarbonisation process was the lack of uh, primarily project engineering skills. And they've been yeah. overwhelmed by how many people now want to work in this sector at a highly skilled level. Uh, so yes. at a certain level, as we come back to the beginning of the show, the steel industry, in Europe at least now, is attracting a lot of young people and We've got a whole pool of women now uh, who want to work in it, hopefully. It's good and, a, and an opportunity uh, in that sense. It's changing everything like that. I agree. I think it's very positive. We should harness that positive momentum 
you know, from from a society perspective, because we've been always saying steel is an enabler uh, in the economic system. It is it is creating about three times more value in the economic system than what you create in the steel industry itself. In terms of employment, our latest uh, survey showed 6 million people work in the global steel industry directly, but that allows 96 million other job opportunities in front and behind the steel industry, in supplying industries and steel using industries. So I think from that perspective, if we can maintain this positive momentum in the steel industry, that also has an enabling momentum in the rest of the economic system, and and, and that that I think is good, mm. and we should uh, we should harness that. Awesome. The other really exciting um, sort of angle on this is that we are seeing startups in the steel industry, mm-hmm. which which at least to my knowledge we we haven't seen much of uh, earlier. So there are obviously, I mean entrepreneurs that that see a real benefit in these new breakthrough technologies and see a market for these very low carbon carbon steels and that's that i i find very very exciting it is interesting and it, and they don't seem to have any trouble attracting capital either are we going fast enough the best i can probably say at the moment is we are doing what we can with what we have and i think I'm sometimes surprised at the speed with which uh, solutions are being brought to the table. So hopefully someone else will will, uh, uh, evaluate us in a a positive light in the future. Awesome. We talked in the beginning about how we had this shift, right, both in the the attitude within the industry and outside. And I I think we might very well come to a point where, where we see things happen very, very quickly. So we've seen that with steel technologies before, you know, how uh, the introduction of, you know, continuous casting or or the phasing out of open heart uh, furnaces, for example. So I I think that we might very well get to a point where we we see sort of an avalanche of, of, of these changes happening. So looking forward to that. It's the start of the beginning, I think. We've reached a hurdle and I think there's definite momentum there. So it's it's exciting. Awesome. As you will know, World Steel, we've we've sort of traditionally worked mainly within the industry. And again, until probably this change in 2017, that's how we worked on environment, sorry, environment and climate change as well, putting the members together, exchanging on good practices and, and so on. But since there is more and more focus on, on our industry in the global climate debate, uh, we also get much more questions, of course, uh, related to how does the steel industry, you know, see the transition and how will it change and so on. And last year, as a vital part of this, we then decided to invite, let's say, views from the outside in a in a different way than we've done before. And last year, we had our first, what we call the open forum with the tagline, a, a climate conversation with the steel industry. It was an event we had in early October last year and it was a fantastic success and we decided then that this would become an annual event so the the purpose of of this is to invite again the whole uh, steel ecosystem we were around i believe 130 people we limit our members uh, involvement to about one third of these seats to really ensure that we get everyone around the table uh, and have a good exchange um, we do try to focus the different sessions on on the areas that we've we've talked about today. So we had 
one uh, one session related to to policy touching upon of course the ira in the us and, and cbam we discussed about common measurement standards we had a session on raw material requirements and energy availability so all of these different topics yeah finance was another one uh, which was a first let's say for us and something that that we are not really used to to discussing inviting the views from the from the outside and making sure that we have a really open open dialogue uh, we're also open with the let's say the outcome of of this so on our website on the climate action open forum you find all the presentations from the different sessions and we will upload the the recordings of the sessions as well in the in the coming uh, week or so uh, we're already planning for the next open forum it's going to be in june uh, next year well Good. thank you very much yeah thank you very much both. thanks for the conversation thanks for the stimulating ideas and um we hope to continue it thanks for uh, for the interesting discussion yeah we should have a follow-up in a couple of years absolutely <laughs> thank you guys this was a really interesting discussion to listen to and i am very much looking forward to our next episode in which we will welcome from the us Stephen montague ceo of midrex